Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 124, Time of the Cheti. Now, last time, which I only recorded it yesterday, uh, I mentioned that we were at 99 patrons, and within just a few hours, Leif Hart made that 100. So a huge thank you to Leif Hart. I'll be reaching out shortly. Um, Yeah, thanks, everyone. I mean, 100 patrons, that really, that's a milestone. It means a lot, and just, I can't say thank you enough to all of you. So now, let's get into it. Last time, we largely focused on big European events. The Austro-Prussian War set in motion events which really shape Europe to this day, leading to the formation of a Prussian-dominated North German Confederation, setting up Prussia to form a German Empire down the line, and of course, severely weakening Austria, forcing it to shift its focus to the Balkans and to remake itself as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Serbia used this moment to form a Balkan alliance, the first of its kind, intended to fight the Ottomans together. But although Prince Michael succeeded in bringing nearly all the people of the Balkans together in this task, his assassination led to the alliance's collapse. Now, Serbia is led by a teenage prince, and so is substantially weaker for the time being. In Bulgaria, factories expanded, the fight over an independent church continued its gradual buildup, and revolutionary activity continued as before. But while most events within Bulgarian lands were progressing normally, across the Danube, that revolutionary activity was indeed entering a new phase. In December 1866, Petko Slavikov began publication of the newspaper Macedonia in Constantinople. Its mission was to spread news, develop a moral and political awakening in the Bulgarian people, and to try to protect Bulgarians from we'll say, ill-intentioned influences, and to kind of form an informed and politically engaged society. The newspaper was stopped by Ottoman censors five times, and after July 25th, 1872, it was permanently ended. So it had a decent run of six years. So we can say it's maybe a similar story to other papers at the time. But also in 1866, Events transpired which would make it a lot more difficult to keep track of all those Bulgarian secret societies that were kind of milling around. Now, it's a bit difficult to find precise details because my sources give very different accounts of these events, but it seems around this time there was a rift between uh, Georgi Rakovsi and a Vienna-educated lawyer named Ivan Kasabov. One source mentions Kasaba forming a rival Bulgarian secret central committee, and other sources mention that it was actually Rakovci and his allies Paniotitov, Filip Totiu, Haji Dmitr, Stefan Karadze, and others who formed this committee. Now, I'm inclined to believe the sources that state that uh, Rakovci and his allies did so, although other sources state that the committee was founded after Rakovci's death. It's kind of all over the place. But a committee was formed, and its goal was to form Cheti bands. Now, I can't remember if I've defined Cheti for you, but it's just a term used for a kind of band of revolutionary fighters. And these Cheti bands would cross the Danube into Bulgaria and instigate armed resistance to the Ottomans. 
two such bands were created, and just a few months later, in the spring of 1867, they entered Bulgaria. One was led by Paniotitov, a 37-year-old from Sliven with years of experience as a haiduk, mostly operating in southeastern Bulgaria. Hitov's band also included Vasilevsky as its standard bearer. Now, the second band was led by Filip Totiu, who was also 37 years old and from a village near Velikotornovo, who he had also really had some time operating as a haiduk, in fact, nearly two decades at this point. So they were two very experienced fighters, considering their age especially. Now, Hitov crossed the Danube at Tutrakan, while Totiu crossed around Svistov. Both bands of several dozen men made their way gradually towards the Balkan mountains, trying to kind of gather support from locals as they went. The goal was for them to meet up in the mountains, but Totiu's band was surrounded by Ottoman regular and irregular forces and largely destroyed. The five survivors fled in the night into the mountains near what is now Botev Peak in the central Balkan mountains. These survivors met up with Hitov's men, and the combined force then fled into Serbia. So, in essence, this first you know, attempt by the Cheti to cross didn't go very well. I mean, you know, most of the men who did it did survive, but it seems not very much was accomplished. Now, once all these survivors made it into Serbia, the government, still run by Prince Michael, this is still before his assassination, was at that moment feeling more favorable towards the Bulgarian revolutionaries, now that Serbia was forming that Balkan alliance, and not feeling as much Ottoman pressure. So, the survivors were allowed to form the Second Bulgarian Legion in Belgrade. However, Hitov decided to retire and support coordinated anti-Ottoman activities between Bulgaria and Serbia from Belgrade, but, you know, not as an active fighter. He was getting into, you know, his late 30s. Totiu, though, decided to continue fighting. Now, the new Bulgarian legion was at this point funded by Russia and trained by Serbian military officers. Other Bulgarians operating in Romania also joined the legion and trained to fight the Ottomans. Again, remember, at this moment, Serbia thinks that there is going to be a, you know, big fight against the Ottomans by all the members of this alliance. And so just as the last time they fought the Ottomans locally, the legion would be a you know, handy military tool. But, as we know, the Balkan alliance fell apart and that Balkan war really never materialized. Rakovsi himself died of tuberculosis in Bucharest on October 9th of 1867 at only around 45 or 46 years old. And so, well, the purpose for which the Second Bulgarian Legion was founded wasn't really appearing, and it's sort of potential central figure. I mean, Rakosi was still in Romania while the Legion was training in Serbia, but still the inspiration for those Cheti bands, the man who really made it all happen, was now gone. The day after his death, Rakosi's funeral was attended by hundreds of Bulgarian immigrants, foreign diplomats, and Romanian public figures. Now, in his 45 or 46 years, we could say few people did more then Georgi Rakovci, to advance the cause of a post-Ottoman independent Bulgaria. The man was a force of nature. His energy seemed endless. Honestly, reading through the sources and things, my wife and I would laugh at each other and ask whether he ever really slept. I mean, it just seemed like he was always doing 10 things at once. 
He founded secret organizations. He wrote books and he wrote pamphlets. He built political relationships. He laid the groundwork for the revolutionaries that followed. Again, the man was a force of nature. However, there's still no denying that at this point, the efforts of the Bulgarian revolutionaries had largely been a failure. Misha Glenny quotes a historian of Bulgarian's early modern intelligentsia. His citation didn't make it clear who he was quoting, but that's where this source is from. And this historian wrote that, quote, The Bulgarian intelligentsia turned into a class of alienated men who fell far short of developing close and lasting ties with the people as a whole. As nationalists, these activists loved their people, but they loved it as an abstraction. When the people failed to measure up to their image of it, the intellectuals turned on it with disdain. Although such an attitude might serve as a, as a legitimate way to cure societal defects, the social criticism of the Bulgarian intelligentsia had a negativism about it that bespoke something else. The rejection by a cultured elite of what in its frustration came to be regarded as the uncouth masses. In a related way, the intelligentsia established hardly any relationship at all with that part of the population which by and large was the people, the peasantry. The nationalists idealized the peasantry as the simple but sturdy backbone of the nation. In practical terms, however, they overlooked the problems of the peasant and they did not try to train themselves in the things that they needed to know. If it largely ignored the peasantry, the intelligentsia came into sharp conflict with the business class, the part of society which gave it birth and which it most closely lived and worked. End quote. Now, I'm kind of bringing this up in the wake of Rakovsky's death because I'm trying to kind of give some perspective as to how the overall revolutionary movement is going at this point. You know, what people like Rakovsky and Levsky have achieved at this point is quite remarkable, right? They they have worked tirelessly, but as much as we can respect and idolize them, it's important to understand what they have failed to achieve in the, the kind of context of what they're doing at this point. And that's that ultimately, as the failure of this kind of Chetty band shows, they really weren't connecting very much with the peasantry. You know, doubtless most of the peasants that the Chetty interacted with had never heard of them. And Rakotsi, you know, writing all of these books and pamphlets and things, that doesn't mean anything to the peasantry who are still largely illiterate. You know, ultimately, we're seeing all these, you know, high-minded liberal revolutionary activities, but the connection, that, that well, really lack of a connection between them and the peasantry is an incredibly important factor that's going to play into Bulgarian politics and society for many decades to come. And this is a problem thus far, you know, we've seen in Greece where the revolutionary elites were so disconnected from the everyday experiences of the peasants and that led to some of the infighting that affected the Greek War of Independence. Misha Glenny also points out that unlike the peasants in places like Bosnia and Herzegovina, peasants in Bulgaria did not have a history of bearing arms. And so they weren't even in that way kind of as connected to the revolutionaries. You know, some of those peasants might have defended themselves from Kurgerly and other bandits, but that was a more limited case. The basic assumption that many Bulgarian revolutionaries had that the peasantry would surely rise up at the first chance and fight as if their lives depended on it already seemed dangerously out of touch. Still, if revolutionaries could lay the groundwork, distribute arms, and prepare local populations for revolution, some cooperation was possible. But 
Just how the collaboration between the revolutionary intelligentsia and the peasants would pan out remains to be seen. And again, as I just kind of alluded to, even once Bulgaria becomes independent, the fact that these revolutionaries will help form some of the early political parties, and ultimately those political parties themselves will remain quite disconnected with the peasantry, leading to the development of things like agrarianism, which my academic specialty, I'll talk about plenty in the future. But still, those revolutionaries were somewhat connected with everyday people. For example, early in 1867, Christo Botev returned from two years teaching in Odessa and Bessarabia to replace his sick father as a teacher in a school in his hometown of Kolofer. You can see a photo of the house where he would have stayed on the uh, blog post page for this, uh, for this exact episode. A few months after that, on May 24th, the festival day of St. Cyril Methodius, Botev made a public speech in which he denounced the Ottomans and the wealthy Chorbajis who allied with them. Now, unsurprisingly, attacking the government and the most powerful people in town so publicly made things pretty awkward, and Botev was forced to flee. He wanted to return to Russia, but a lack of funds meant he had to settle for Romania, where most of the Bulgarian revolutionaries in exile were hanging out anyways. Now there, he met Vasilevsky. And in the preceding months, Levski had been unable to train with the 2nd Bulgarian Legion. Remember, he was with one of those Cheti bands, the one that was not surrounded and largely wiped out. But since escaping to Serbia, a pretty serious stomach condition had developed and he had needed surgery. And as a result, he left the Legion and didn't really participate in a lot of this. But that didn't mean that his dedication to the cause was changing. Far from it. On the 1st of February, 1868, Levski wrote a letter to Naidan Gerov in Plovdiv, stating that he would soon be back in his birthplace and needed to meet some people who would give him some things. Shady stuff. But essentially, the phrasing and the contents of this letter more or less indicated that Levski was now working towards a national revolt and was sort of getting deeper into that revolutionary life. Months later, he wrote a letter to Paneot Hitov, informing him that he indeed had decided to fully devote himself to freeing Bulgaria, emphasizing famously that if he was successful, he would succeed for the nation, but if he failed, he would only fail for himself. So today in Bulgaria, that's a very famous expression connected with Levski. Now, when he ended up in Bucharest after leaving Serbia, uh, Levski met with Haji Dimitar, but didn't really approve with Dimitar's plans for moving Chetty into Bulgaria, and ultimately he and Christo Botev spent the winter of 1868 living together in an abandoned windmill outside of Bucharest. It's just an odd detail, but I found it interesting. So clearly Levski had learned some things about, you know, how those Chetty could be more successful in Bulgaria, although it seems Haji Dimitar wasn't listening to him, though I couldn't find details about their kind of disagreements. But, you know, it is good that uh, people like Levski are getting practical experience of what this really entails, because of course, you don't really want to have a bunch of revolutionaries who have no idea what they're talking about or what the things they're proposing would look like in practice. Now, meanwhile, Serbian politics vis-a-vis the Ottomans was evolving. Remember that recently, you know, uh, the second Bulgarian legion had been allowed to form there because Serbia was thinking, yeah, we're, we're probably going to go to war with the Ottomans soon anyways, so who the hell cares what they think? However, since the assassination of Prince Michael, you know, up to then, you know, they've been working on creating that powerful anti-Ottoman alliance, but 
actually, even before his assassination, Michael went on an official trip to Constantinople. Just about the same time, he was actually in talks with Bulgarians to create a united South Slavic kingdom, as we mentioned in the last episode. So it's interesting, you know, Serbia has always been a bit difficult to pin down in its relationship with these Bulgarian revolutionaries. Sometimes it's a good ally, sometimes it's very much not. And in this case, it seems like Serbia is hedging its bets a little, even before the assassination. Now, months after all this, in November of 1867, a new Serbian prime minister came to power who favored reconciliation with the Ottomans. Based on this new policy, the Second Bulgarian Legion was forced to disband in April of 1868. Russia, which had been funding the Legion, protested, but to no avail. The members of the Legion had to leave Serbia, mostly fleeing to Romania. So at this point, what's happening with all these revolutionaries? What about the well, seemingly endless church issue? Now, on the 10th of February 1867, we saw some advancements. A man named Grigory VI became the new patriarch. Again, actually, he had originally been elected to that position in 1835, but was removed because he was such an arch-conservative that he angered everyone from the British ambassador to the Ottoman foreign minister. So, we could say that didn't bode well for efforts at an independent Bulgarian church. But there was still very heavy pressure for all kinds of reforms from internal and external forces. Shortly after Grigori was elected, the French ambassador in Constantinople gave the port a memorandum in which France suggested reforms for the empire and foresaw allowing Christians into government positions, mandatory military service, as well as school, tax, administration, and court modernization. Meanwhile, the secret Bulgarian Central Committee in Bucharest was working hard to elicit its own foreign support. On the 3rd of March 1867, members wrote a plea to the Russian emperor regarding solving the Bulgarian political questions with Russian aid. They were also writing to Alexander II of Russia, to Napoleon III, Wilhelm I of Prussia, Otto von Bismarck, all kinds of leaders. Now, one member of this committee, uh, Pandali Kisimov, even wrote to the sultan himself proposing a dual Bulgarian-Turkish country in which Bulgaria would have political and church domination in their portion. So I guess something like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it seems with the Austro-Hungarian Empire fresh on the scene, these dual proposals were all the rage as we've now seen them with Serbia, with the Ottomans, and uh, and with some other kind of versions of that for between like Serbs and Croats and such. Now, that same month, the Virtuous Society organized an assembly where about 75 to 80 influential Bulgarians who represented immigrant societies in Wallachia and southern Russia prepared an official protocol which declared that Bulgarians and Serbs needed to unite in a South Slavic kingdom under the Obrenovich dynasty. So again, there's a lot of these kind of joint proposals, and it, it makes some sense. You know, Bulgarian revolutionaries and, and advocates for an independent Bulgaria have long since concluded that doing so without foreign support is exceptionally difficult. And by joining forces with uh, another state like Serbia, they're really increasing the likelihood that they can get that foreign support. So you, you understand where they're going with this, but it is an interesting development and, and interesting to note how often these conversations are happening. Now, the next month, the Russian ambassador Ignatiev gave the Ottoman government a project for reforms in the Ottoman Empire in which they demanded the creation of an autonomous province for well, bunch of autonomous provinces for all the main national groups in the European part of the empire. Now, 
Overall, you know, it, it seems like at this point, everyone has a proposal for solving the church issue and even the wider national question of how the Ottomans can or should evolve and adapt to this new age of nationalism. You know, France is proposing things, Russia is proposing things. Everyone's got their own ideas about how the Ottomans should do things. It's a part of this larger trend we've seen of the Ottomans having really less and less control over their own state and the people living in it. So then, in May of 1867, Patriarch Gregory VI no doubt surprised everyone and actually gave Ambassador Ignatiev a proposal consisting of 18 points for solving the Bulgarian-Greek church dispute. Among them was the suggestion for the creation of an autonomous Bulgarian church headed by a metropolitan under the authority of the Patriarch. The proposal also foresaw a diocese of the future Bulgarian exarchate to only encompass the territory of the Danube Vilayet. So, that's it. Pretty interesting. Even the old arch-conservative was willing to make some compromises, although, to be clear, this proposal still fell well short of what Bulgarian reformers were demanding, in particular because, under it, Bulgarians of Thrace and Macedonia would be completely left out of the new Bulgarian church kind of institution, and that institution would still be under the authority of the Greek patriarch. But still, I think, especially considering the conservatism of Grigory VI, this is real progress. Uh, the, the patriarchate is, is kind of coming around on some of the core issues here. In September, Ilarion Mikiriopolsky, Paniat Plovdiski, and Porteni Polyansky met up with Grand Vizier Ali Pasha and demanded that the Ottoman government solve the Bulgarian church question. Under the influence of the vizier, the three then wrote a plea pointing out that the Bulgarians desired the restoration of the previous Tronovo and Ohrid church centers destroyed by the Patriarchate centuries earlier. So, again, we know at this point that many elements within the Ottoman state, along with foreign governments like the Russians, are pushing very hard for Bulgarian church independence. And even the Patriarch seems to be kind of accepting it a bit. But still, this is for now just talk. But it's important to know that the patriarch is kind of coming along and that even the grand vizier seems to be on the side of the Bulgarians. Now, overall, with Western countries becoming more and more active in Ottoman politics, it seems that the sultan recognized that cultivating those relationships with European states was more important than ever, leading him in 1867 uh, to become the first sultan to travel to Western Europe. He visited Paris and the United Kingdom, even becoming a Knight of the Garter by Queen Victoria. Of course, it was easy for everyone to play nice to the Sultan because, well, the Sultan owed a small fortune to British and French creditors. So, you know, they uh, they had a reason to be very, very, very kind of uh, pleasant with him and things. But still, this is an interesting development. And on the Sultan's way home in Russe, he met with local notables who gave him a plea demanding resolution of the church question. No surprise there. The Sultan then used a Belgian-built wagon on the new Rousse-Varna railway on his way home in August of 1867. You can see the wagon today in Rousse's railway museum if you want to, and really the entire track was lined with soldiers to protect him, and crowds gathered at stations, although the Sultan apparently stayed in the cabin for the entire trip. Now back in Serbia, Politics had also gotten interesting following Michael's assassination and his nephew's regency. I mentioned that Serbia was rebuilding its relationship with the Ottomans, but it was still able to finally expel the last Ottoman garrison and administrators in 1867. Remember that 
in essence, Serbia is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire and a trend we'll see with a lot of these newly independent states. But, you know, that that kind of Ottoman suzerainty is still pretty vague and doesn't amount to much, largely having some you know administrators and garrisons there and I think Serbia paying him some taxes. But Serbia was now strong enough and competent enough to say, we're done with that. So they essentially, interestingly enough, accomplished through negotiation what Serbia, along with the help of the Bulgarian legion, the first one, had failed to do by force five years previously. But still, in Serbia, the young Prince Milan was under a regency. But despite all this, Serbian politics were not stagnant. They were still evolving. In fact, a new militaristic nationalism was on the rise. As Misha Glenny summarizes, there were basically three competing factions for how Serbia should evolve and proceed. The first were the liberals, who wished for Serbia to be run on Enlightenment principles and generally looked to France and England as models. Another group favored the Prussian model of a strong bureaucratic state and an even stronger military. Then, finally, there, were the, there was the radical union of Serbian youth who wanted nationalistic uprisings, a kind of modified version of socialism, and doing away with the existing bureaucracy. Now, young Milan did not quite appreciate just how powerful these forces were. He was still a teenager. But, I'd say put another way, Milan and his government were, they were riding a tiger and they didn't even know it, right? Serbian society was, you know, fracturing and becoming radical and becoming political while the regions he just sort of muddled along. Now, finishing up 1867, that year also saw a textile factory being built near Sofia with imported machinery from Belgium and Austria-Hungary, employing about 100 people. A record 100 Bulgarian books and 10 periodicals were published. And really, Bulgaria was making serious advances. But one of the architects of those advances was also about to leave his post. Conservative forces in Constantinople finally managed to eject Midhat Pasha from Ruse and the governorship of the Danube Vilayet. His four years in the post had seen impressive progress in the region with infrastructure and economic gains. Scholler a fi- quotes a financial advisor to the later Prince Battenberg, who wrote about Midhat, saying, quote, Midhat belongs to those names which, in any given country, haunt you with the persistence of a hallucination, in the same way as you can't escape from the pyramids in the environs of Cairo or from the Mont Blanc in the Alps. Ask in Bulgaria, who built this road? Midat. This bridge? Midat. These konaks, these warehouses, this model farm, this factory, these barracks, these hospitals, these orphanages, these schools? Midat. Always Midat. He did everything and anything. End quote. So, during his time, the peasants of the Danube Vilayet actually became quite prosperous. He really did bring a lot of economic development. Although one reason was that with Romania and Serbia out of the empire, Bulgaria became the main supplier of wheat and many other goods to the Ottomans. In addition, Mitat had helped really establish Ruse as one of the foremost cities in Bulgaria, long after considered the most European and advanced, with a population greater than Sofia for decades afterwards. But despite all that success, Mitat was out, and as I've noted before, Mitat in many ways was good for Bulgarians, helped a lot, but he was also very brutal in putting down anti-Ottoman activities. So, you know, from the perspective of Bulgarians, a very two-sided coin. But overall, now that Mitat is gone, he 
within about a year will be appointed as governor in Baghdad, which was seen as a kind of punishment, a, a lowly posting. But even with Midad gone, progress continued. On May 31st, 1868, a concession was awarded to build a railway between Constantinople and Belovo, which is a town near Pazarjik, essentially finally beginning a, a rail line which would eventually connect Vienna with the Ottoman capital. The concession was granted to Maurice de Hirsch, a German-Jewish businessman and philanthropist from Bavaria. But there were some pretty serious challenges to building this railway. To quote Scholler, quote, much of Bulgaria is hilly or outright mountainous. The topography of the country presents a formidable challenge when constructing roads or railways. Nothing like the Chausées of France, straight like a line as if pinned down between two points on a map, was conceivable here in most areas. And it is fair to say that the Ottomans did not employ sufficient resources. This changed during the second half of the 19th century when wars with Russia made roads a strategic asset and military advisors stressed their importance. In addition, local governors tried to implement the spirit of reform during the Tanzimat epoch by building modern-looking communications. The most successful of them was certainly Midhat Pasha, who, during his tenure, did what he could to improve the roads. But it was too little too late, and could in any case not be carried out on a large scale. Serviceable roads with a lasting surface and drainage ditches remained a rare sight, those that existed had been built by the locals by some form of corvée labor. One such road was the Chausée between Lom and Sofia, and it was duly praised by travelers. End quote. So, getting a bit beyond just the railway, but you can see there kind of the difficulties in building this infrastructure. And anyone who's traveled in Bulgaria by rail has actually probably traveled on that route. It's uh, you know probably the main one cutting through the country. Now, construction of this railway will begin in 1869, but Again, it was no small project, and it was not going to be finished in a few years. Still, railways were coming to Bulgaria, even without the efforts of Midat Pasha to advocate for them. And I think it's also important to note that this would be Bulgaria's first railway to connect to other railways. You know, the, the one before this, right, the Rusay Varna line, was completely disconnected from anything else. So it was just a lone little line, single track, one direction at a time. And that's where we will leave off for today, with a failed attempt at fermenting an uprising in Bulgaria, with Serbian and Greek politics going through intense periods of radicalization, with the Ottomans beset on all sides by powers asking them to do this or that, and with seemingly some genuine progress being made on the Bulgarian church issue. Next time, we'll see yet more Cheti entering Bulgaria to work for revolution. Major events on the Bulgarian church question, and yet more events shaking up the European world with dramatic consequences for Bulgaria. In other words, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and the subreddit linked in the episode description. And I'll catch you next time.